Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord God, so much for the glorious truths about which we have sung, about our Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son, in the marvelous mystery of your incarnation, of your perfect life, of your sacrificial death on the cross, about your future reign when you come again, and we reign with you, being made reconciled with God through your blood. Lord God, you are orchestrating a massive, glorious, beautiful plan for, the, for all of time that you have started from before time began, even into now and into the future. And I pray, Lord God, that we would be able to lift up our eyes away from the simple uh, things in front of us, maybe the mundane, the tedious, the random things of life, and see what in the world you're doing. And I pray, Lord God, by getting us a, a vision of what you're doing, that we glean from your word that you have revealed to us. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to see things in a transformed way, that we would push into each other and push each other on to Christ-likeness in a, in a new way, in a new desire, a new motivation. And Father God, I pray, Lord, that we would not uh, be satisfied <clears throat> in just going through motions and just maintaining our current level of Christ-likeness. And Lord God, I pray uh, even for myself as I preach and I teach this, this evening that I would also be convicted as I, you have already done in my heart as well. So Lord, open up our minds, help us to reflect well, help us to see beautiful things from your word, and may, us, may we be transformed for your glory's sake. We pray in our Savior, Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, I don't, this is kind of like the substitute teacher a little bit, where I have no idea what the format is, so I, I just do stuff you're not used to. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's completely normal. But um, no, so my name is Thomas Ross. As you know, I work here at Shepherd's Institute with the Shepherd's Seminary, and that's our one-year master's program. And the reason I'm mentioning that is a little bit of a plug, but not so much advertisement, as it does segue in quite nicely with what I'm going to talk about tonight. So our little motto, whether it's cheesy or really cool, I don't know what it, either one, is one year, one life. And the whole geared, the whole thrust and drive for that one year program is to, tr is to push people into intentional community, intentional discipleship. And no matter where you go, I, I pray that there's a certain level of increased intentionality upon reflection about what in the world God's doing and what his purposes are through us individually in this age, in this time, in this era, because it's absolutely marvelous. So, <clears throat> with all that to be said, this is kind of a uh, precursor to the whole year, and I thought, man, this is such a great biblical theology, meaning we trace the whole thought of Scripture from Genesis through Revelation, from start to finish, on one key theme, and the key theme we're talking about tonight is the fact that God has left witnesses for His glory. He has left ambassadors in this world to glorify His name, <clears throat> both to the redeemed and to the lost. And I want to trace that because I want to get our minds out of the day-to-day, -day, oh, I got to look like a good Christian just so I can kind of fit in or just so I can, you know, I don't know, do my ministry that I want to do or, you know, have the right Christian subculture and the right whatever it is. Or even just out of a, a desire to, to please the Lord out of my obedience or something like that. Like, man, I love that song. We, you know, we've, we're fighting a battle God's already won, right? So we're not increasing our Christ-likeness, pursuing Christ because, you know, we're trying to please Him as if, like, He's not pleased and now He is going to be pleased. Now we're going to be 
pursuing Christ-likeness, right? Because we have already been set free. We have already been united with Christ, all right? So, tonight, I'm going to have you guys, if you have scriptures, get your scriptures open, get your Bible open, get your phone open. I don't want to do all the talking. I might have a question here or there, but I'll definitely be calling on random folk to be reading the scriptures. So, get your loud voice going, because I want to hear other people going tonight, all right? All right. All right. Well, I don't know if it's, have any of you guys seen any of these like commercials, probably for college or state school or community college. Uh, I went to a community college in Ohio, and they probably had commercials like this all the time where it was like, you know, some, there's like a bunch of B-roll of someone driving up, getting up early, going to school, and maybe playing with their little baby in the morning or something. And then <clears throat> what you would see is like, you know, one, maybe the, the parents asking the other their parent or their friend, like, hey, what, what is she doing? You know, and maybe it could be, you, maybe the one person could answer, like, oh, she's getting up really early every day, or oh, she's working on her homework, or, or oh, yeah, she's just plugging, she's reading her classwork. And then, like, the big takeaway is, like, no, she's building a future, or something, you know, it's, like, really big, right? It's, like, a, a higher-up vision, like, it's, it, there's the mundane thing you're actually doing, and then there's, like, the big vision thing that's actually going on. And like sometimes it's cheesy if it's in a commercial, but it can, it's absolutely paramount that we get our minds off of the mundane into the, the heavenly places in our Christian walk. Because otherwise it's going to be, oh, Sunday night, here comes college ministry. Oh, Sunday morning, there's, there's church. Oh, there's Monday. Oh, there's Tuesday. I got to get the donut from uh, NC State, you know. <clears throat> there's a little plug there for you. So, but there's a little, these little mundane things that are always going on, right? And my whole goal is for you to pursue holiness not out of a goal of just, well, that's what every other Christian around me is doing, so I better do it. I want us all to be pursuing holiness and to be pushing into each other and using the discipleship and the community that God has planned for us to do that in such a way that actually rallies with God and what He's doing, that actually gets your mind to realize, hey, there's something bigger going on here. This is amazing. I'm going to be a part of it. All right? So with that, if we're going to pursue holiness, righteousness, if we're going to pursue Christ-likeness, pursue God's mission, all those kinds of things, I want us to do it for the right reason. So we're going to paint the big picture. All right, for us to paint the big picture, we have a very big picture that has been painted, all right? It's not random. It's not my story. It's not, you know, even just as amazing as some missionary stories are. It's not something localized into, you know, this generation. No, it's like before time began. It's from the creation of the universe, It's from the creation of the world to the fall of mankind and on and on and on. And I think this talk is, I hope, will be a great springboard of what you guys talked about last week. All right, first question, what did you guys talk about last week? Someone needs to say it besides Paul. All right, yeah, sure. Sweet. That was not an open note quiz, man. Come on. <laughs> you got it right there. <laughs> no, that's cool. All right. <clears throat> well, if I recall, there was something along the lines of being said that we are, oh, I don't recall. Uh, we are being equipped. We're to have dominion, something like that. Does that ring a bell for anybody? 
All right, I got some, I got some, some nods. All right. Hopefully that's at least 10% encouraging, Paul. All right. <laughs> all right, let's get into it, though, guys. All right. Here's what's at stake. I'm going to give you my, my pitch first, and then we're going to go through all the scriptures. We're going to kind of go blow through them quickly, and uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to raise up our eyes into a bigger vision, okay? All right, so here's my pitch. Throughout time, God is intending, since the fall, to redeem his creation, to bless all of the people of the earth, and thereby make his name great among all of those people of the earth. And that third one is absolutely 100% key. Because God can make his name great among all the peoples of the earth in a lot of different ways. And throughout time, he's going to do it in some very peculiar, unique ways that we will see. So we're going to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament. And I a lot of time, I mean, like how much time do we, we got? Like half hour, 40 minutes? What do we got? Something like that. All right. So not a lot of time. But some time in the Old Testament that we don't usually spend in there. So I hope we can get a bigger picture. All right. All right. So someone open their Bible. Give me Genesis 1.28. We're doing sword drills. We can't be, we're taking too long. And I will call on people. Yeah, hit me. Oh, wait, someone was making a noise back there. Who was it? Do it, yes. What's your name? Luke. All right, so boom, right off the bat, God is going to call men and women to have dominion over this creation. It wasn't fully beautiful. It, wasn't, it was Eden was beautiful. The rest of the world's going to be cultivated and crafted to make God look amazing because of the glorious creation he has made. We're going to use our brilliant minds because God made his image to be brilliant. We're going to go and make the world beautiful. And everyone else that's going to come from Adam and Eve is going to go, whoa, that's amazing. Yeah, you made that? God, oh my, oh, God's amazing. This is glorious. That is the intended response every beautiful thing you could possibly see in this entire universe. <clears throat> that was the intention pre-fall. Even in a post-fall world, that should still hearken the same kind of emotional response, right? Okay. But that's the goal, right? But then we have some, a big problem, right? Genesis 3. Genesis 3 comes in. The snake comes in and says, hey, <clears throat> I'm kind of jumping ahead, but uh, we've got a problem. Satan comes and says, hey, you know what? You're better than God. You should go trust me because you'll, be you'll be better off if you think that you're better than God. Where am I getting that from? Well, I'm getting it from Ezekiel 36, 34, and 24 where, we're like, where we get a picture of what God, where Satan is like, like the king of Tyre who thinks himself as a god. Well, that's exactly what Satan's going to tell Adam and Eve where he says, hey, if you eat the fruit, you'll be like God. And Paul, I guarantee, is going to dig into that because there's a gajillion ramifications about that, right? So, Mankind has, plun has been plunged into complete despair, into complete wickedness, etc. We know that story very well. <clears throat> but then there's a hope, right? There's always that, there's that little hope, there's that seed that's saying, hey, uh, the seed of the woman will crush the seed, of, will crush the snake's head. And that's also something that we're also probably familiar with, right? The idea that even at the very beginning, when the mankind fell, that there's a hope, there's a gospel, there's a, there's a hope for mankind to be restored into unity with God. All right, then we see that traced through in, let's continue down through Genesis. The next, the next main character we have in Genesis is, well, I'm going to say Noah. There's probably some other characters in there too. But in Noah, or in Genesis 5, 
we see a ton of people. Go ahead and look at it if you want. Just look through there. You'll see a common theme. A little hermeneutic lesson number one. If you see repetition in the Bible, it's probably important. All right? So Genesis 5. It's going to say, let's get there. All right. Someone read Genesis 5. Uh, let's just start with 11. Random. All right, you can go ahead and start. Man, that's so heart just moving. That's such a great verse, right? Okay, no, that next one. All right, let's get uh, 14. Uh, I'm just going to start pointing. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Everyone get your Bibles out. I might point on you. <laughs> I want uh, Genesis 5. Let's give me uh, 17. getting there. You can do a phone a friend. We're going to have you call the next one. Alexander, you got it? Oh, man. I, everyone get your phone out right now. Open your Bible app. If you don't have a Bible app, that, we'll get on it. What? Yeah, yeah, go for it. No, just go for it. It's, confidence is the key. Just say something. That was perfect. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. How about give me 20? No, wait, uh, John, right? Yep. Go ahead, give me 20. All right, give me uh, 27. Um, what's your name? Uh, yeah, what's your name? Hannah. Hannah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. All right, and Micah, I think you're 31. Okay, we're seeing a pattern, right? Someone lived this long and he died, this long and he died, this long and he died, this long and he died. All right, well, we're promised a seed that's going to crush the head of the serpent. Well, guess what we got? Boom, not him. Boom, not him. Boom, not him. Boom, not him. Oh, man, it's not looking so good. I bet Adam and Eve were probably thinking, maybe like next year? Maybe in our lifetime, the seed's going to come and crush the head of the serpent? That would be great. Nope, dead, 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 dead. Thousands of years, right? Still not them, okay. But then we get to Noah, and for some bizarre reason, people think, I'll read this one for you guys. All right, I know it's just warming up. It's the evening, I guess. <clears throat> uh, Genesis 5:29. <clears throat> he says, and they called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Painful toil of our hands, that was the curse of the fall, Right? It says, our mankind, you will be, you have to toil with a sweat of your brow to bring forth the world's fruit. And for some reason, not sure, we're not told why, for some reason people think maybe Noah is it. We're going to call him Noah, which means rest. Maybe he's the guy. <clears throat> well, we do find out that obviously Noah, spoiler alert, he dies, but he is significant. 
And he's going to usher in, basically, the recreation. And when that happens, everyone dies except for eight, right? He, his wife, his three sons, and their three, da- and there's three daughters-in-law. So 9-1, Genesis 9-1 says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Why is that significant? It's significant because for, well, one reason, two points. One, it is the same command that God gave Adam and Eve, right? Pre-fall. So it's not like, all right, humanity, <clears throat> you botched it, which we did, right? Like depravity, it's disgusting. Just go bury your head in the dirt and then wait to die. That's not it. That would be a perfectly just thing to do, but that's not what he said. That this world's fallen, but I still want you to cultivate it. I still want you, Noah, and all of your humanity, all of your kind, to go and make this world beautiful again. Be fruitful. Have kids. Multiply. Fill the earth. Hmm, there's a, there's a plan going on here. We have the Noahic covenant. We're not going to get there, okay? All right. Now, you have to realize that <clears throat> for about 2,000 years, God is dealing with people in general. From the fall all the way up to Genesis 12, we've got about 2,000 years of, time, of history. It's kind of nuts. Just a few little chapters, right? And God isn't necessarily just dealing with one person. Noah was an exception. We have the Tower of Babel where everyone's gathering together and say, we're not going to go cultivate that world. We're going to go build up our own place, make ourselves look great. Er, not going to work. Confuse the language, spread you out. <clears throat> Before that, we even had the, the table of nations in Genesis 10 where you have those 70 different families upon which the whole earth is going to be populated from those 70 families, those 70 tribes, those 70 clans. All right, so God is still working his way to get all of humanity out across the world, all right, to represent him. Ideally, they would be still connecting with Yahweh in a, in a loving, kind, in a uh, repentant way that they would say, you know what, God, you're still God. I'm a sinner. That's the ideal route. Like, that's, the, that's what was supposed to happen. That does not happen. People go and continue to do their own way, continue to live wickedly, and that's just a, a story, a time after time, story after story in Genesis, we see that. So for 2,000 years, God's dealing with humanity, and all I, basically God's saying, hey, I'm pursuing you, and then the rest of humanity is saying, I don't want anything to do with you. So God eventually says, you know what? I've got a different plan. I'm going to talk to one man, and his name is Abram, and he's going to be my guy. Abram at the time in Genesis 12, or Genesis, uh, before that, he's worshiping the moon over in Babylon, Ur of the Chaldees, Mesopotamia. God calls him out, says, hey, I've got something for you. I want you to go to this land. It's very special. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you seed. I'm going to give you blessing. Land, it's very specific. It's beautiful land, but you have to trust me in it. Seed, you have a ton of kids, even though you're old. Blessing, everyone who blesses you, you will be blessed. Everyone who curses you will be cursed. This is the Abrahamic covenant. Now, God's going to say, all right, I've dealt with everybody. Now I'm dealing with one person. And through that one person, the whole, the nations of the world will be blessed. You know, we're, you know honestly, I'm like, I, man, if I was God, I wouldn't do it that way. I would just, I don't know what I would do. I'd just be like, all right, send in Jesus right now. Let's get the salvation going. But God's got different plans. His wisdom is far above our wisdom, right? He says, I'm going to deal with Abram, and then I'm going to have a nation come from you. And from that nation, from you, Abram, that nation, all the world will be blessed. 
So God is in making an intentional move to make sure that there is a faithful remnant that represents his name in the earth. After 2,000 years of people saying, I don't want anything to do with you, he's saying, well, I'm going to make sure, I'm going to raise up one guy and one family to represent my name. If they don't want to deal with me directly, I'll have them represent my name. <clears throat> so that's what he does. We see that in Genesis 12, 15, 17, 21. That's again, 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 and again. Throughout the whole story from Genesis 12 on, everything that bad that happens to uh, all the good, everything that happens in, to Abram is just an outworking of that Abrahamic covenant, a plan to bless Abram. Why? Just because he's a great guy? No, he's not a great guy. He was a pagan, right? But he trusted God. He believed in God, and that was counted to him as righteousness. Amen? That is exactly the way we get that same righteousness, okay? So, now we've got Abram. He develops into a huge family. Let's, let's fast forward. We're going too slow. Let's fast forward. We're, okay, we're into Exodus. That family gets huge. They go down to Egypt because there's a drought in the land. <clears throat> Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? Jacob, the 12 sons of Israel. Okay, now we've got 12 sons of Israel. None of them are particularly great, unfortunately, but when they go down to Egypt, in Genesis 49, we have yet another little prophecy or foretelling of what God's plan is for this people. In Genesis 49, 8 through 11, who, who do I want to call on? Uh, let's see. The person in the far back, back there. What's your name? Dylan. Can you read Genesis 49, 8 through 11? Yeah. All right, basically what that means is there's, there's a massive nation, but from that nation there's going to be one guy. There's going to be a king that's going to come from that nation. He's going to be significant. We don't know much about him yet, but when he comes, there's going to be crazy prosperity. The vine here, when it says you'll bind the donkey to the vine, the choice vine, that's like, have you ever seen a vine? Have you ever seen a donkey attached to a wooden post? I haven't because I'm a city slicker, but you can see it in movies and stuff, right? You got the wooden post right there. You got the donkey on it because the donkey's pretty strong and obstinate. It can, like, it's going to yank that out if it really wants to. Think about binding your donkey to a vine, a vine full of grapes and, del and delights, right? So in this ancient civilization, if you got a vine that's that honking big, that means you got massive prosperity, well, when, the, son, when the, the lion's cub of Judah comes, that crazy prosperity is coming. Not just for Israel. They're going to get it, but he's going to bring prosperity and blessing to the whole world. All right, let's go forward. Exodus 19, let's jump forward. All right, 400 years pass, new Pharaoh, we know the story. Exodus, God calls out ex, uh, the Israelites from, uh, from Egypt, not because, oh, they were just so you know, victimized and so just struggling so much because they were dragging God's name through the mud. 
We see that in Jeremiah, we see it in Ezekiel, saying, hey, when you were in Egypt, I had to get you out of there because you were loving the idols of Egypt. Israel, I called you to be representing my name, not to be falling in love with all the other idols and the false gods of the rest of the world. So eventually, eventually, through the narrative, we see the, the horrors of the Egyptian slavery. They do end up, Israel does end up calling out to God, and God says, yes, I will take you out because I need to get you to a different place. You're being influenced. Now, I want you to be somewhere specific where you can represent me well. All right, so they, he does. We know the whole 10 plague story. They get him, they, we get to Mount Sinai, all right? Israel is there now, and God gives them their charter. God takes the the little family of Abraham, and makes into a, a glorious nation of Israel. And Exodus 19, 5 through 6 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be a treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Do you know what that means? A holy nation... That's kind of obvious, like you're not going to be just debaucherous, sinful, okay? A kingdom of priests. Guys, a priest is someone who mediates. Mediates who? Between God and someone else. So around 1446 BC, God's going to call up Israel and say, listen, I'm giving you a land. I'm giving you a constitution, a la the Mosaic Covenant. Lots of rules about how to govern your country. Why? Because I hate you? No, because I love you, and I want you to be a beautiful, holy nation, and I want you to be a priestly kingdom. And you might say, well, yeah, but the priestly kingdom didn't go anywhere, right? They're supposed to stay in that little piece of land. How is that supposed to represent God to the whole world? That might be the question you're asking. Maybe. That's perfectly legitimate, because now in the New Covenant, we're always told to go out, right? We have these missions, and we're going out to the world. No, no, no. Israel's supposed to say, put Israel stay put right in that fertile crescent, right on the Mediterranean Sea, where the whole ancient Near Eastern world is going to travel through there, from Africa to Asia, Asia to Africa, Asia to Europe, Africa to Asia, etc. They're all going to go right through Israel. And you know what they're going to say? In Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8 is what they're going to say. Who has that for me? I need a little courageous one because it's like, it's a little bit longer than the other ones. I did. Paul, you need to call on people. I don't know names. <laughs> yeah. All right. What's your name? Jacob. Jacob. Uh, Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. Right, the rest of the nations of the world were scumbags. Let me just 
I won't, we can read all the other, the different, the other different stuff, the Enuma Elish and all this other, you know, just the, all different law codes, Hammurabi and all that stuff. That's out there. Guys, the Mosaic Covenant was gorgeous and beautiful. It uplifted and cared for people who needed to be t- uplifted and cared for. It was holy. It took God seriously. It was not some way to manipulate the gods, right? And this is the whole deal. In Deuteronomy 4, it says, everyone's going to come through that little land, and they're going to say, what an amazing God. This place is clean. It's beautiful. There's life. There's, pr- there's prosperity. There's blessing. And the intention was, who's your God? Tell me about him. You should grab any kind of Israelite you see and say, you got to tell me, like, what, what is this God? What is this law? What is this land? And they tell you, when that Israelite tells that foreigner, they're going to say, well, I want to worship him too. And say, well, great, that's a great idea. You should. In fact, the first law that we have in this land is there is no other gods besides Yahweh. That, today we're like, oh, who, who cares? That's a huge deal. Everyone believes in zillions of gods in that time. If you see the proofs in the pudding, you see the money, you see here, wow, this is amazing. This land is different. That is the intention. That's the goal. All right, well, next you got about 300 years of failure in the book of Judges. That was a shame, truly. Eventually, we're going to fast forward a lot. They're not representing their name. They're not representing Yahweh's name to anybody for any good or at all. But, Eventually, we get a prophet, a priest named Samuel, and he's going, to base it, he's going to anoint a king. King Saul first, he doesn't do so hot, all right? 1 Samuel 13, 1 Samuel 15, gets the kingdom revoked. Nope, it's not Saul. And why is it not Saul? Because, hey, we read in Genesis 49, didn't we? That that guy, that king's going to be from Judah. Saul was from Benjamin. That's not going to work. We should have known that from the beginning. But no one's reading their Bibles, goodness gracious. Especially not in that time. Granted, you know, they didn't have Bibles, but whatever. So, what does happen that's significant, though, in 2 Samuel, we finally find out that there's a man after God's own heart, picking the the lowest of the, picking the lowest and making him the highest. That's David, right? 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 19, we have a new arrangement. We are still under the Mosaic covenant that governs how God relates to Israel and how everyone should relate to God. But now we have a Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 19. And all that, all for all of our purposes today, that means the success of, that, of those witnesses, that being Israel, is going to be tied to how well that king does. When that king does extremely well, the nation will do well. When that king offers up their kid burnt alive to, to Molech, like what happens in Manasseh and almost every, lots of other kings... Guess what? The nation's going to go headlong with them. So but we have a Davidic covenant that says, David, no matter what, you will have a king. I will have a, a key representative of my witness, of my ambassadors on earth. And the idea is, ideally, that that key representative should be a holy, righteous person, kind of like David was, except for the end. <laughs> All right? And guess what? His son gets into power, and for a long time, Solomon does a great job, right? In 1 Samuel 4, 20-34, says, And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from the kings of the earth and, we had no, and we, who had heard of his wisdom. 
Solomon built up the land, built up the borders, built up the temple, built up everything. The prosperity was there. There was a righteous man ruling on the throne in Israel. Guess what? And all the nations came and said, there's a wisdom here. There is glory here. Who is your God? That was the intention, right? Exodus 19. The intention was, you will be a kingdom of priests. You will mediate to the rest of the world how good and glorious I am. And finally, finally it happens with Solomon until he gets distracted. God says in in Deuteronomy, hey, you can't be reserving up gold, you can't be reserving up horses, and you can't be reserving up women if you're the king in Israel. And Solomon did all of that, like he was trying to brag about it almost. He trips, he stumbles headlong. Okay, well, it was looking pretty good, but that was the intention, right? People or the whole world should be seeing the glory of Yahweh. Well, though they stumbled, there's still hope. We have all these major prophets, all these minor prophets coming through saying, guys, listen, we are supposed to be representing Yahweh to each other and to the world, and since we're not doing it, guess what? The Mosaic Covenant said we're going to be taken out of the land. The northern kingdom, the kingdom splits in the north and south, that's already awful, right? That's like a church split. Like that, that's a lie about Christ and the unity we have in Christ, right? Well, a split in Israel is like a lie about God. Well, it happened. North kingdom, south kingdom. North kingdom gets hauled off by Assyria. Okay, well, that's a shame. We got Judah. Maybe Judah will still do better. No. In fact, Judah does way worse. The southern kingdom takes what they did in the north and said, we'll double down and do even worse. And they did it. Babylon comes, takes them away. And now we're thinking... There's no witness on the earth. If you were alive at that point in time, you had no hope, zero hope. The only priest that, the only mediation you could find to get to God was through his people, Israel, and they're gone. But God saw that coming. And he said throughout his minor prophets, including Isaiah 9 through 9, 6 through 7, hey, I'm going to send a son. A son will be given to you. The government will be upon his shoulders, the prince of peace, wonderful counselor, mighty God, etc. And we obviously know that to be Jesus Christ. But before we get there, God is going to maintain a remnant. Even when Babylon takes off southern kingdom Judah, there is still a king who's alive, a part of the Davidic, the Davidic line. And his name is Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin will come back to the land. Well, Jehoiachin won't, but his kids will. And eventually that line is going to lead all the way down to a guy named Joseph, right? But I'm jumping ahead again, sorry. <clears throat> when Bab- before Babylon comes and destroys the temple, this is the holiest spot on the whole face of the earth, there's a latitude and longitude where God has decided to show forth his magnificent glory, his shining Shekinah glory. That's in the temple in Jerusalem, and he picks it, and then he's going to destroy it. That is nuts. No one thought they would dest- that, that, that that temple would be destroyed. Well, in Ezekiel 10, basically God says, hey, I don't like how you're representing me. You're not representing me at all. So, I'm taking my glory out of here. Ezekiel 10, 18 through 19, you see the cherubim. If you ever read Ezekiel, you're like, what are those wheels? What are those cherubim? It's God's throne room. That's the spoiler alert. That's what it is. All right? God's throne lifts up. He goes away to the Kidron Valley, to the east of the city. God's glory goes with it, as if to say, I'm out of here, Babylon, go ahead and take over, destroy it. 
God still needs a good witness for this world. He could be done with it. He could say, hey, forget it. I'm just, I'm scrapping the whole project. Humanity didn't work. No, he didn't do that. Why didn't he do that? Ezekiel 20, verse 9. Uh, Let's have someone read that. Someone in front of the sound booth, there's like five of you guys. One of you, five. So at least it's down to you, five. (laughs) Ezekiel 20, verses 9. Right, but I acted because, I, because these guys are so great, because I love them so much, I can't be without them, I, just, I don't, I don't want to be here without you guys. Nope, I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived. Just to remind you, this is the world we live in, it's, two, you know, it's what, 900, about 3,000 years, uh, 2,500 years later, but it's still the same world. God still cares about representing his name well to, ever, to, the wor- to the people of this world, all right? This is what he cares about. Ezekiel 36, 16 to 21, I'll say it. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. I thought they were supposed to represent Yahweh, didn't do so hot. But Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 33, before everything gets destroyed, God makes a promise. It says, listen, my name will not be profaned. I'm going to make a promise to you, Israel. You're going to be taken away, but you will come back. And this law that you have broken, called the Mosaic Law, I'm going to give you a new covenant. And this new covenant, instead of having the law written on tablets of stone, it'll be engraved on your heart. I think the idea is, Israel, you cannot represent me because you, have not had, you do not have a regenerate heart, a circumcised heart, a new heart. That's Ezekiel 36 talk. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 24. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. God is working in a protective, loving, kind way to Israel because he's saying, I'm going to protect my name. The nations know that Yahweh is Israel's God, and they think, Everyone else destroyed Israel. I guess Yahweh is not that great. How God's people work and act and live in the world is how the rest of the world interpret our God. Their God. Did I say our? Whoops. 
So Israel profaned God's name, but God, because of his promise, because for his namesake, for his desire, for his faithful covenant love, it's not just obligation. He still loves these people, right? Because of his promise, for the sake of his name in this world, he will act to bring about a godly people to represent him well. And the glorious thing is, when those people represent God well, that means they're in good unity, good relationship with God. When that happens, like Ezekiel says, then those people's souls will be satisfied. That you might be satisfied in the goodness of Yahweh. Wow. It's not an obligation. We're not slaves, like begrudging slaves. Oh, I have to go represent Yahweh. No, they get to. There's joy there. All right, well, the exile's over. Everyone comes back into the land. We finally think everyone's going to learn, right? All right, they're back in the land. They got the temple taken away. Almost everyone's killed. Read Jeremiah. You'll just cry for days. Read Lamentations. You'll cry some more. Now they're back in the land. Finally, righteousness will be there. Yahweh will be represented. People will turn to Yahweh, right? Wrong. Now we have a new way for people to turn from Yahweh. There's two ways, actually. The people there basically think one of two things. Hey, we got kicked out of our land because we broke God's law. Let's get crazy hyper-focused about obeying that law. We're not going to do anything wrong. In fact, we're going to build up some extra laws to make sure we don't accidentally break a law in our sleep. We're going to have all kinds of laws because we do not want to get kicked out of our land again. Does that sound like any group you know in the New Testament? Yeah, those are called Pharisees. The other option was, hey, we got kicked out of the land because the nations kicked us out of the land. You know what we need to do? At this point in time, there's Greece comes in, Rome comes in. They say, if the people kicked us out, then we should probably get pretty good and friendly with the people, with the other nations. Sounds like you might sacrifice on some of the things that God called you to, to, called you to group two. Group two is thinking, if the people kicked us out, then let's get good with them. Well, guess what? That group should also sound somewhat familiar in the New Testament. Those groups, that, group of, that group of people are called the Sadducees, who became very friendly with Rome. We don't care about the temple. We just want money. If we have money, we have relationships, we got power, we're in the land. Yet again, the depraved heart did not go, Yahweh, I'm sorry, I'm coming back to you with my full heart. No, again, again. All right, but now we're, in the, now we're into Jesus' time, and we're like, finally, the Davidic king is here. All of the prophecies that we've been hearing about, about the restored Israel, the restored people of God to go and proclaim the glories of Yahweh and to rule righteously on the earth, great except there's a hitch in the plan that no one really saw coming. God's people, Israel, wanted nothing to do with him. <laughs> like, that's the guy. No, that's, that's not the guy. I don't care how many miracles you show me. I don't care what it is. We want to keep our land. We want to keep our power. You are, you're breaking our extra laws. You don't fit theologically with what our system says. Get out of here. And in fact, because we love ourselves so much, We're going to crucify you even when you do the miracles of resurrection like with Lazarus and others. That is a stony, stony heart, right? That can even turn away from the Lord of glory when he's proven himself time and time again. Here's the New Testament surprise. Uh Uh-oh, 
God's mediatorial people, Israel, they're going to be set aside for a time. Didn't see that one coming. There's maybe a hand, couple of verses in the Old Testament that might make you think that that might happen. But you'd have to be a really smart exegete to put it together. But I guess if Israel's, you know, gone out of the picture, God's hopeless. There's no, no witnesses in the world. Oh, that's not the case, is it? Obviously, we're all sitting here. So what happened from point A to point B? Point A, 33 AD. Point B, 2023 AD. Well, something pretty amazing happened, actually. We have the beginning of a brand new entity, a new entity that has Jew and Gentile together with direct access to God. And we're probably so prone and used to that fact that we're like, yeah, of course, that's, that's nice, yep, that's good. Guys, that is so ridiculously, earth-shatteringly glorious that if you just don't spend enough time in the Old Testament, you're not going to appreciate the glorious relationship we have to God Himself any moment we want. We don't have incense here offering up our prayers to God. We don't have the sacrifices to go kill to say, hey, I need to make myself cleansed before you. We have been cleansed. Amen? This is crazy. But let's keep the theme going. There's a, a new role. Look at what 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12 says. Let's just go to 11 through 12, actually, and I'll read it. Beloved, I urge you, this is First Peter, this is Peter talking to other Christians now, right? I urge you as a sojourner and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Why? So you can fit into your Christian subculture. No, that's not it. So keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So somehow this new group of people will have the opportunity to make others glorify Him before Christ comes. Well, what, I skipped the most important part of that whole section. Verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Does that sound familiar? It sounds familiar because I'm probably 45 minutes ago. Good night, I've been talking for a long time. Probably because in Exodus 19, we saw the same thing. God said the exact same thing to Israel. And Peter's saying, listen, I know Israel has rejected their Messiah. We pray for when they will come and, and listen to that Messiah. But in the time being, we have been given a very special role, a very special job to do. We are the chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation in this time, in this moment. We are the next people to get the baton passed to, to represent Yahweh, represent Christ, represent the Trinity in this world. And what kind of people ought we to be? Well, Christ said to let our light shine before men that, they might, that men might glorify our Father in heaven. Titus 2, go read Titus for just for, just go read Titus and count all the times, count all the times it references good works. You'll be amazed. Titus 2, 11 through 14, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Uh, get down, verse 14, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are, what? 
recluses. No, zealous for good works. Good works, Titus 1.16. Good works, 2.7. Good works, 2.14. Titus 3.1. Good works, Titus 3.8. Good works. How about Hebrews 10.24? Hebrews 10.24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Why? Just because that's a nice thing to do. That makes us feel good. Because we are God's ambassadors in this time. The goal from the very beginning is to represent Yahweh so that the blessings of reconciliation with our Creator can be had. That is our role. And if we don't do that, if we don't take it seriously, if we just wake up and, oh, i got to do my thing, eat my donuts in the morning, do whatever, go to work, okay, yeah, and then, oh, read my Bible, sure, okay. If we don't do that, here's what happens to a bunch of people who didn't, who didn't actually follow through and get their mind in the heavenly places, all right? Here's what happened in, in Revelation 2, 4 through 5. There's a little church called the Ephesian church. Here's, what's, here's what happened. Jesus himself is talking to them. He says, but I have this against you, Ephesian church. You have abandoned the love you had at first, Remember from where you have fallen and repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's kind of like the New Testament equivalent of destroying the temple. (laughs) But God is so much more good and so much more glorious than that. And we have this awesome privilege, and it is a stewardship. It is not just a, a, a privilege that we get to go enjoy, and then that's it. No, we, we, got to get, we have to have this, and now we get to go and encourage the, the brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ to push them on to the fullness of maturity. And why? Yes, there is a time in the, in the future kingdom, in the new heavens, the new earth, where we will all be related to God and see His glory, what was faith, it will not be sight. That's great. But like, we have a goal now to push each other on to Christ's likeness for the purpose of representing our God and our Savior in the world well. We do that through good works. We do that through challenging each other. That's not my choice. This is the church. This is what God has said what the church is supposed to do. Let's consider how to stir up one another with love and good works. Because there's a big, glorious task we have been given. That we get to be co-laborers, 2 Corinthians. Co-laborers with Christ. What a glorious end. So here's the, the, here's the rub, all right? I've been chatting for a long time, basically going through the whole scriptures like crazy. Listen, the level to which we actively pursue the Great Commission the level to which we actively put off the old man and put on the new man, the level to which we actively one another inside the church well, you know, like all the one another's we get in the scriptures, and the level to which we actively grow in our Christ-likeness is equal to the level to which we will glorify the God we are representing, to which we accurately represent God to the people's of this world that he does redeem to have relationship with. And it is equal to the level to which we will grow up into the fullness of maturity of Christ. Where he says in John 15, there's fullness of joy, right? This is not an obligation. This is not a gotta go to small group, here we go. 
We are entering into the most glorious task we could possibly ever enter into. Our forefathers, by the Spirit, not necessarily by the flesh, from Adam to Abraham, Abram all the way up through Christ, we get to take that mantle for a time. It is a glorious privilege. So when we are trying to pursue Christ's likeness so that we can look like God intends us to look, unlike Israel or unlike, honestly, a lot of the churches do, like the Ephesian church, we are not into mere behavior modification. Behavior modification is called Phariseeism. That didn't work out. Only changing our behavior is shallow. It is skin deep. We want to attack our hearts. We want to attack our desires, our affections, out of a desire to fulfill our role well. That means we want to have our emotions, our thoughts, our affections, our desires, our identity, and our right theology in place so that we can run this race with endurance, throwing off the sin that so easily entangles and all the encumbrances that hinder us. This college ministry, this is not just some get to go and sing some songs and hang out. This has a gloriously high purpose, one that God has been working since the creation and the fall. So I'd say let's enjoy that call, push into each other, try to look past the tedium of the day-to-day stuff and realize there's something big going on here. And may our desire for Christ to be honored and uplifted in the world really motivate us. All right? With that, could keep on going, but we're going to pray. Let's get out of here. Probably went way over. (laughs) Love you guys. Lord God, you have given us so, so much in your word. You have shown us time and time again of your character, time and time again of your long-suffering, time and time again of your love, your desire to make your name great. And the glorious thing is when your name is great and we behold it, we have joy, we are satisfied in your goodness. What a glorious, glorious God you are. Father, lift our sinking spirits, lift our drooping heads. May the truth of who you are and who we are in Christ because of what he has done for us and the role we have motivate us and may it sustain us and buoy our sinking hearts when we're tired or we're frustrated. May the truth of who you are and the riches of the gospel influence and direct all of our thoughts and emotions and behaviors. And I pray that this group would be able to push each other on well because we love each other. We want to push each other on to love and good deeds, not because we care about our own glory, but because we care about the glory of you, God most high. Thank you, Father. We thank you. And we praise you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, through whom we can know you freely forgiven. What a Savior. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.